Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This week with a Southeast Asian feel, because I'm spending a few days in Singapore. We've been talking a lot recently about the global slowdown and where it might lead. But it's worth remembering that we also saw trade and global manufacturing take a step downwards back in 2015 and 2016. And that didn't cause a global recession. In fact, we look back on it now more as a pause for breath in a long global recovery. But back then, China, in effect, came to the rescue with a massive dose of stimulus for its economy. One of the things that makes people uneasy about this latest slowdown is that the Chinese authorities look much less likely to rescue the global economy today. They're just too worried about where excessive stimulus might lead. That's forcing some difficult conversations for policymakers in countries such as Australia, who've benefited so much from China's economic momentum in the past. We'll hear more about that from our Asia managing editor Malcolm Scott in a few minutes. But of course, the other reason this time feels different is that the source of the trouble is the US administration and its assault on global trade. Bloomberg's Asia economy correspondent Michelle Jamrisco is going to talk to me about Southeast Asia's response to Donald Trump's trade wars in a little bit. But first, our real economy editor, Sarah McGregor, who's based in Los Angeles, has been catching up with an old school friend of hers who wanted to set up a new business there and found herself right in the front lines. What were the first days of starting your business like? They're funny. They're at my kitchen table. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It wasn't glamorous at all. I think like it was exciting for me and scary. It took a huge leap of faith for Dara Vanecchio to leave her day job and start a beauty company in Los Angeles five years ago. Dara knew she had the qualities to be a successful entrepreneur, like industry expertise. She also has a tireless work ethic. That was instilled by her parents who fled the Southeast Asian nation of Laos with nothing when she was an infant and worked their way into the middle class. Best of all, Dara had a great idea to create a cosmetics branding company she called Venomade. In doing that, she chose a growing industry that can often weather the ups and downs of even the toughest economic times. Research has noted the lipstick effect, which shows makeup and lingerie stores thrive in tougher economic times as consumers treat themselves to lower cost luxuries. Fast forward to today, and she's moved her operations from her kitchen table to an office in West LA. Dara has six employees and contracts to develop and manufacture customized beauty products in the millions of dollars. My mom and my father being like really hardworking, I guess like taught us those values and we would see them working like really late hours and just seeing them like really grind for us, you know, so I feel like my work ethic today comes from having them as role models. Nothing was ever given to us, so we would have to really like earn it ourselves. But last year, Dara's dreams collided with the Trump administration's trade war with China. She was drawn into a conflict she wanted nothing to do with. President Donald Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods hit all sorts of items, including lipstick and eye makeup. Almost overnight, Dara realized the harsh reality that her very own supply chains in China were in the firing line. Yeah, it was weird because I I actually didn't think about it. And I was like, oh, it's going to be fine. We already have 
paid our you know our people and, and it's good we already have these purchase orders in place but what I didn't realize how bad it was was going from 0 to 25 or 0 to 10 because when we do our deals with our clients we have probably put everything on paper and, and done the planning and our deals about eight months prior. So that fixed cost that we agreed to with our client has been that all-in-one cost. So if we get charged something eight months down the road that we didn't predict to fix into our costs, then who pays for that? American consumers may hear more about whether prices will be rising for familiar China-made goods like iPhones, crate and barrel furniture, or Adidas sneakers. But the tariffs have been particularly painful for small businesses, which are a powerful engine of the U.S. economy, accounting for about 45% of GDP and employing almost half of American workers, according to J.P. Morgan. They play a key role in global commerce by producing about a third of all exports that leave America's shores worth nearly half a trillion dollars a year. Robert Heiblum, a business owner and chair of the Small Business Council of the Consumer Technology Association, explains why smaller businesses can be more vulnerable to the trade war fallout than large ones. The, the problem is limited capital, cash, and this takes cash. Secondarily, it's uh, they don't have diverse businesses. They're not multinational. They cannot offset their business losses here with business gains elsewhere. Third is most small companies don't have tremendous pricing power. And so they're subject to the market and, and that's very limiting, particularly when, when tariffs are 25 or 30% too much to absorb, yet some of their big co competitors will as a matter of course. Trump campaigned in 2016 on a message of resurrecting the bygone glory days of manufacturing and bringing back jobs. He was essentially selling the American dream. But for business people like Dara, the tariff war he started is making it much harder to get ahead, even with hard work and grit. The uncertainty and drag on business has made that dream a little further out of reach. the small businesses in terms of the questions that they have is how can we plan? How can we realistically plan for inventories or, or plan for the movement of our goods that we need if there's this threat of global tariffs? Maria Salinas is president of the Los Angeles Area Chamber of Commerce. She says her region has really been hit hard by the tariffs since it has one of America's largest concentrations of smaller businesses. Our advice to them is to be as planful as possible. It's very difficult to manage a business when there's uncertainty, and especially in international markets. It's important for them to make sure they understand all the different levers that are at their fingertips in order to react uh, to conditions like tariffs. Uh, but those, those are all really challenging conversations for small businesses to have because they really do not have the flexibility that larger organizations have in being able to make uh, movement in, in how their products flow. Over the years, Dara has visited China many times and she plans to go again in December. 
One conversation at a time, she's built a personal rapport with factory owners and managers. She's developed a small network of factories she can call on to deliver her orders at high quality and in a reliable way. She's found that factories in China operate at such a low cost with a quick turnaround and have a personal touch that she just hasn't found in the United States. Some bigger companies are able to relocate their supply chains to Vietnam and other cheaper nations. But for Dara, doing that would mark a big setback in her efforts over the past few years. We spend years and years vetting our factories, the investment, the money that it takes to like test and work and make sure that because we, we spend a lot of time like even like helping raise their quality standard and, and create these like specifications for inspection and like because we have a certain quality bar that we're known for. So years and years and even like, man, you know, like just the time it takes to get our factories to that point in training. But we'd have to start from scratch and God knows like it might take like another two years to get this new Vietnamese, which is fine. You know, if this is going to continue, then maybe we would make the plan to do that. But is it better to invest in that or to just like reinvest in what we're already doing and then just take the hit and just like wait it out? Dara is just one example of many businesses across America who are suffering the impact of the trade war. It's slowing down their investments and hiring decisions and disrupting their supply chains. Add it all up and it can be a matter of life or death for some small businesses. It is frustrating because I feel like when there was material increases and stuff, we might cover it, you know, because it's such a small thing because we don't try to nickel and dime everything. But when it comes to a huge loss like that, like in, in the varying tax, like 25% on your commercial goods, that is, it's pretty big. For Bloomberg News, I'm Sarah McGregor. So that's how the trade wars feel for a small business sitting in California. But I wanted to take advantage of being here in Singapore to get the other side of the story. You know, here in Southeast Asia, these economies famously have used exporting to the rest of the world as their ticket to national prosperity. And Bloomberg's Asia economy correspondent, Michelle Jamrisco, spends her days here in Singapore and around the region analysing every twist and turn in that story. Uh, Michelle, you were you were listening to that. I mean, does, does any of her experience bear similarity? to what companies are experiencing here? Well, it certainly does in the sense that Dara's story is the struggle to adapt to the U.S. tariffs and, and in any way possible. But the conversation is a little bit different in Southeast Asia. I mean, I think of basically three other avenues that they're they're dealing with, three other challenges. One is how to compete for the attention of those companies that are actually reworking their supply chains out of China and to get that uh, extra business. Conversely, the second could be how to manage expectations and overflows of orders. So, you know, when that comes all of a sudden, these companies uh, rework those supply chains chains. And the third is that they it's a sort of political one. They don't want to be seen, these businesses, as taking sides, uh, whether it be the U.S., China, or not uh, favoring either. So it, there are a few uh, different quirks to the story here in the region. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they're, they're actually rushing to take advantage of the trade wars rather than uh, rather than to dodge them, even with some of the politi- politics that, that comes with that. Now, some people listening might remember that you brought us a great story from the factory floors of Vietnam 
Vietnam when Vietnam was considered to be a great uh, winner from the US-China trade war. And then we had a follow-up a few months later, which showed us that there's an alternative risk that you can be too successful taking advantage of trade wars. And then the spotlight moves to you. Remind us what's happened to Vietnam. Right. Well, it is a complicated story, even if you just look at this year. I mean, of course, we we have been tracing the successes of the both the furniture maker that you mentioned, as well as countless others that are seeing uh, renewed interest in Vietnam. And sometimes uh, the interest is outrunning the reality. Um, so, you know, there are two kind of cautionary tales that we've been also tracing for Vietnam's case this year. And one is, uh, you know, what you mentioned, uh, not not trying to uh, boast too much of one's successes, uh, you know, for fear that a tweet could turn it around or, or other tools by the U.S. We've seen, of course, the currency manipulation report by the U.S. Treasury taking away of duty-free preferences that they just did with Thailand or, you know, even uh, extra tariffs in, in, in the case of Vietnam. This, this happened as well, that uh, tariffs were applied as sort of a penalty for uh, transshipment issues, that the U.S. felt that too many of the steel products were, were actually originating in other countries and Vietnam wasn't doing enough to uh, kind of stop that sort of uh, end running of the tariffs that had been imposed. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of penalties that they, can, they could face. And then the other, of course, being, you know, they're, they're constantly fearing that um, they're just not catching up enough in terms of development and uh, advancing their infrastructure enough to handle the, the inflows. So that's certainly an issue with Vietnam, where they're looking at uh, much-needed infrastructure investment that's just not moving fast enough in the views of many. Regulations are, are still tight around, around some things. As if you talk to businesses, they're looking for uh, faster training of employees, um, you know, better labor regulations, easier ways to buy land and property, um, and really just the, the basics of road and rail to kind of get things around the country and um, move products around. So a lot of adjustments uh, need to be made, and I think sometimes they're just not moving fast enough. I guess the other thing, which certainly I hear a lot talking to officials and business people in Europe, but we also heard this morning talking to officials and others uh, in Singapore, is this perception that um, globalization is now going to be sort of torn in half, that there's going to be a US side and a China side, uh, and disputes around companies like Huawei are going to force people to take sides. Am I going to go the kind of Huawei, Chinese-oriented uh, technologies, even if that means I might get cut out of deals in the US, or do I have to pick the US? You know, in Europe, in general, when you raise that to European businesses, they, they tend to think that Europe will, will, if it has to, would end up siding with the US. Obviously, it's, it's not so much of a question here uh, because people are so caught up with uh, the ch- China's economy and trade with China. But the companies that you talk to, how are they approaching that question if there really is going to be a point where you have to take sides in this global economy? Yeah, well, some, uh, you know, they they want to hedge their bets. They want to kind of uh, put investments everywhere, make sure that they're not upsetting either side. Um, and, you know, they in a way, they've kind of had to act like governments. They've had to, you know, think, how do I both lobby uh, from my perspective on how I don't think the tariffs might be helping or, you know, it's, it's getting harder to adapt or I need this or that to set up in a new country. But at the same time, I don't want to push too hard in the sense of, uh, you know, upsetting either side and, and, and as you say, picking sides. Um, and certainly we see that playing out in things like 5G and, and company-based debates. So it's it's gotten really sticky on that front. And when you talk about the U.S. and China, particularly in this region, it's a very sensitive conversation. For a long time, uh, China has been uh, the top trading partner of most of 
the top economies in Southeast Asia. But at the same time, a lot of them have very strong security, investment, and strategic ties to the U.S. So it's it's not an easy decision, and uh, one that you'll hear Singapore policymakers especially constantly harp that they don't want to ever see the day where they have to pick a side. Many people think that is where we're heading because this doesn't seem to be something that's got this change in the U.S.-China relationship doesn't seem to be something that is going to change, even if we get a change of administration uh, in 2020. We've talked about before people in Congress and certainly many of the Democratic presidential candidates are, are just as uh, suspicious about China and uh, have some of the same approach that we've seen from President Trump. So for a country like Singapore, that's always been a gateway between West and East. Gosh, that's a, gonna, the risk is that they will feel really torn, uh, torn in half in terms of their economic model. Michelle, thanks very much Thank uh, for chatting to me and uh, being here in Singapore. Thanks for having me. Finally, I, I wanted to chat briefly with our managing editor for economics in all of Asia, Malcolm Scott, because his team had produced an interesting story this week about three central banks in the region who you'd have to say had a good global financial crisis 10 years ago, but are looking a bit more vulnerable to another downturn now. It's South Korea, Australia and New Zealand. Malcolm, th- thanks for doing this uh, down the line from Sydney. Uh, r- remind us how those three countries managed to avoid doing anything that dramatic with their monetary policy last time around in the global financial crisis. Well, to start with, they had much higher cash rates than they do now, much higher benchmark interest rates. So they, they did cut aggressively. They also had aggressive fiscal responses when demand fell off a cliff uh, during the financial crisis. But they had a lot of policy room to work with and they used it very efficiently. In Australia's case, there was even uh, checks posted out to most citizens to, uh, to go and spend in the stores. And that meant all three uh, you know, avoided the worst of the, the global financial crisis. And then their links to China helped. In New Zealand's case, it was dairy, white, gold, they called it at the time. In Australia, it was mining investment. That massive stimulus we saw in China really helped rev up Australia's economy as well. And in Korea's case, the tech cycle really didn't suffer so much. And they saw a big V-shaped recovery uh, into 2010 that really motored them out of the hard times. Now we're in a very different situation. Yes. And I was, I mean, it's interesting. I said at the start of the program that we had had, you know, in the previous slowdowns, even in the in this current recovery in 2015, for example, you know, the big thing that came to rescue the global economy was China, China stimulus. Um, you don't, we don't have that anymore, which is important for all of the world, but it's particularly uh, important for this region. So your piece this week or the piece from your team said that those three economies were now just one shock away from using quantitative easing, doing the bond purchases in order to boost the money supply that we saw in so many other countries during the global financial crisis. Is that something people are talking about there? It's something that a lot of people are talking about because all of the central bank governors have started to mention it from the three economies. Now, they've done it reluctantly so far, and each one of them have said, hey, we may have to start looking at this, but we don't anticipate we'll have to use it. That's been pretty much the consistent message. But just the very fact that they've acknowledged that they're running out of room in conventional space and have acknowledged that they're starting to look at policy options in the unconventional space has really got economists, you know, 
running their gameplays, running the scenario analysis, looking at what sort of uh, QE, what sort of unorthodox policies each of the banks might take should they continue to need to stimulate their economies. And do you think, I mean, this has been a region that uh, has in the past, certainly Australia and New Zealand, led the way in some of the innovations we've seen in central banking, uh, making the central banks independent, having inflation targets, you know, both of those things were first tried or fully developed in Australia and New Zealand. Do you think they might be looking for ways to innovate with quantitative easing as well, you know, given that a lot of people in in Europe and America are actually questioning uh, whether quantitative easing is really that effective. Whether they innovate, Stephanie, or whether they've just had the benefit of being able to see what has worked and what hasn't in the major economies and therefore can tailor a package with the benefit of that decade of watching and observing. You know, the RBA governor in uh, Australia, Philip Lowe, has, has said that from his viewing around, you know, the other, uh, other examples of unorthodox policies, from what he sees, it's a package of measures, no one particular unconventional option that works best. It's, it's how you formulate the package. You know, in other cases, we're talking about uh, some real reluctance to go towards a negative rate. Perhaps asset purchases are going to be maybe uh, favoured. But then there's other question marks about, well, bond yields are already so low. You know, what can, what can asset purchases really do? You know, what real significance in an era where there's that reluctance to invest in the business community. Does it really matter? So, you know, innovations, whether there's going to be some new policy, I'm not so sure. I think it'll be the packaging and the experience of the last 10 years that will help them uh, as they formulate these goals, should they need to adopt them. Well, uh, it might help them. I guess uh, the rest of us can feel a bit sad that they're not going to get uh, more bright ideas coming out of uh, Australasia for, for responding to this to this downturn. Uh, these are the countries, in the case of Australia, that managed to avoid recession altogether. If they're running out of uh, good, uh, good options, then that seems like bad news for the rest of us. But we shall see. Um, Malcolm Scott, thank you very much. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. I think I'll be back in London then. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was written and reported by Sarah McGregor. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks this week to Michelle Jamrisco, Malcolm Scott, Richard Lewis and Kevin Tan. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.